The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. Leave me alone! I'm slacking! Go away! See ya! Let's do a show. Okay. Here we go. Today is December 22nd, 2014, and this is episode 98 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry, and let me say, uh, Merry Christmas. It is Christmas week. Yeah, likewise, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to everybody listening. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, uh, well, then we're sorry. We just offended you, but we, we withdraw our Merry Christmas merriment. Yeah, in a, in a benign and polite fashion. Oh, well. Whatever. We, we might have to edit that then. Uh, <laughs> how about Happy Ramahana Kwanzmas? So whatever you may celebrate this time of year. That's true. And Happy New Year. And any other politically correct statements we should be saying here. There you go. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers, past, present, or future. Um, it's back to just you and I. Last week that, we, that's had, right. we had, we were guests on another podcast and then they sent us the audio and then. Actually, the other way around. I sent them the audio. Oh, see? Look at that. That's right. So hopefully that wasn't too jarring for everybody. That's not something we're going to do all that often, but occasionally it's fun to just get some other folks in the mix. That's know. right. Reach out and have some fun. They invited us, and you know it would be impolite to not accept. <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. So let's, uh, let's jump into some stories so we can, uh, we can get on with this. Sounds good. Our first story comes from the Atlanta Business Chronicle, and the title is Home Depot Data Breach Costs Community Banks $90 million. bucks." And uh, the uh, the headline here is that the independent community – wow, let me try that again. Independent Community Bankers of America is reporting that the uh, community banks they represent had to reissue about 7.5 million cards. Uh, in the wake of the Home Depot breach, which, by the way, mine was one of, and uh, and that cost about ninety million bucks. So we've talked about this a couple of times in the past. That you know, this is one of the, I think, one of the un, you know, one of the unsung costs associated with these major retail data breaches. You know, we always think about all the f- credit card fraud and whatnot, but you know, I I, I haven't heard what the the fraud tally is. Resulting from Home Depot, but ninety million bucks just to reissue cards is a pretty, pretty significant bill. Yeah, I was also thinking that too. That they don't mention any fraud in the in these costs. So, did these guys not actually experience fraud? I don't know. That's a good question. And maybe if yeah. they did, they uh, you know here's the thing. I suspect that the anti fraud technologies are really good, right? And so I suspect that. You know, as a as a relative amount, it's probably pretty minimal, which kind of leads me back to: I wonder if at some point we're going to see a decision not to to replace cards. Right, assuming that the anti fraud technology would be good enough to spot the fraudulent transactions and yeah. to shut them down. Exactly. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, I, I don't I don't particularly know, but um, this is this is again the I think the impetus behind the lawsuit. Uh, against Target, right? That, that was just ruled uh, that it could move forward. But by the way, just a, a, a little bit of a tangent. I found it really interesting that a lot of the headlines and a lot of the infosec talking heads are running around saying, you know, the judge ruled in favor of the banks, and Target is liable for, uh, you know, for for this this credit card fraud. And that's not what happened. They just basically said. You know, Target, as I understand it, tried to throw, tried to make a motion that the uh, the plaintiffs, which were the banks, didn't have a standing to sue them, and the judge, as I understand it, said, "No, no, no, no. I'm I'm not going to accept that motion. It's going to go to trial." So, what you're saying is the mainstream media got it wrong? No, oh, I know it's crazy. 
crazy. Right. So we don't actually have that precedent. We just have the precedent of we're going to go to trial to decide if there is a precedent. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, There's no finding of fault. It just they just said it's going to go to trial and whatever. So. Yeah. Oddness. All right, so moving on to our next story, which is uh, pretty interesting. This comes from IT World, and the title is Cyber Attack on German Steel Factory Causes Massive Damage. Yeah, this is ugly. Yeah, and, you know, the, the report itself is in German, and I couldn't actually, I couldn't actually, I did, I tried translating it, and it didn't, just didn't come out very well. Um, but the, the reports I've read essentially said that the, the, the German Federal Office for Information Security uh, released a report, which I think covered a lot of different things. And in that report, they detailed this attack on a German steel factory, uh, which I would, the attack I would characterize as, you know, a, a relatively straightforward phishing attack, which ultimately turned into uh, some form of, of, you know, an availability problem. Uh, it, there's really not a lot of detail on, on exactly what happened. But long story short, uh, the control system that was managing one of their blast furnaces, as I, if I'm inferring right, uh, didn't let the furnace shut down properly, and that caused the furnace uh, some damage. And you know, by the way, I I, I kind of wonder. You know, blast furnaces are an interesting beast. It's been a long time for me, but. You know, I, I, I can't help but wonder if this may have been some attempt to, you know, to roll in normal, normal wear and tear. I, I don't know. Blast furnaces is, is <laughs> blast furnaces, uh, don't have a very long, you know, they, they, they require, uh, somewhat frequent major overhauls. So, this quote is massive damage to the plant. So I'm with you on the potential that this could be smoke and mirrors, right? I, you never know. It, it just, I mean, it feels like that the, you know, the old story about AT&T trying to throw the cost of the building into the, into the one of their hacking cases. I think it was, <laughs> it was against Mitnick or? Probably. Yeah. I, I it think just my, feels like that. My paranoid cynicism is wearing off on you a little bit. <laughs> just, it just feels like that kind of thing, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so let's assume for a moment that it is legitimate. This is pretty nasty. If somebody came in, somehow... Now, it doesn't really say that the hackers intentionally caused the damage. It seems to read more like they disabled access to the control system, and because access was not available... Uh, we had some sort of thermal runaway situation of badness. That's how I read it as well. It, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it could have been as simple as, uh, you know, the, the system was, was wiped or, you know, it's, it's really difficult to tell, but it does sound like an availability problem on a, on a computer that resulted in this rather than, you know, some sophisticated bad guys getting in there and fiddling, you know, temperature right. parameters. And no good story like this would be complete without referencing Stuxnet. Yeah, oh, that drives me crazy. Every single there's a, been a whole bunch of stories, and every single one of the stories makes a reference to Stuxnet, and it drives me absolutely bonkers. But you know what? Whatever. I guess you you can't talk about control systems without talking about Stuxnet. Uh, but you know, this kind of points out the 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 issue, and we've talked about this over and over and over. At some point, it comes back to, you know, well-designed systems, right? Should not have, if you, if you've got a computer that's running a blast furnace, people probably shouldn't be checking Facebook on that computer. I'm not saying that's what happened, but you might not even want it to be accessible on the same network where somebody's checking Facebook. Uh, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's basic block and tackling. It, this, this is, comes back to one of the things that frustrates me about a lot of the technology problems we see. There's just it's just badly designed. It's true. I concur. And I, you know, I was thinking about this as well. Just to slightly branch off into another topic is we are seeing a clear, obvious need for not infosec technicians, people who can run you know, your Palo Alto firewall and know how to make changes. That's a different skill set than true security architecture. Yes. 
very different skill set. And it's something I think we keep getting confused a lot. Knowing how to run certain security technologies does not make you a security guy or girl or other person, whatever you're. Oh, you're, get, you're deep in a hole right now. <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just move on. Anyway, point being, this is one thing we keep missing, right? It's not, I, you don't need to, somebody who knows how to run Trend Micro to fix this problem. You need somebody who understands the risks, how all these things interconnect, and how to mitigate risk. Exactly. And uh, that's a tougher skill set to come by. Absolutely. So, I think this is a bit of an interesting story in that this is very large amounts of physical damage caused by some sort of hacking incident. And hopefully more details will come out. Yeah, and, and maybe we can do a better job of uh, getting that document translated. I don't know if there's more detail in it or not. That that would be a, a possible source of more information. So we'll work on that for, for next time maybe. But moving on to another phishing story... Uh, this time it's for, it's ICANN. The, By the way, are we seeing a trend in how these attacks initiate? I think we are. We, we might be. We might be. Uh, so the, this comes from CSO, and the title is ICANN Targeted by Spear Phishing Attacks, Several Systems Impacted. So uh, the story goes that in late November, uh, a couple of ICANN employees were spear fished and had some of their credentials stolen. Uh, and uh, allegedly the, the fishes were spoofing the ICANN domain. So, you know, don't exactly know, uh, how, you know, specifically how that worked. Does, do they allow, eh, whatever. Um, so uh, apparently some of the people whose credentials they, they, uh, lifted had administrative access to the central zone database system, which, which by the way is, is, is Best I can describe it is a uh, is a place where you can go and download uh, zone files for the GTLD domains, you know, so like the the root domains. It's you know might be kind of important. Um, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. It, what's not clear to me, by the way, is what level of damage they could have done if they had wanted to. I, I'm not entirely clear how. Dependent on you know the internet is on that particular portal. I'm not really sure, but it doesn't certainly doesn't sound good. But you know, kind of kind of points to you know how really damn vulnerable this you know we are as a you know as a community as a as a society when uh, you know when when something like this happens. And by the way, I think this is probably. A far more important story potentially than the Sony thing, and it kind of just squeaked through. So, yep. You know, for me, what I found interesting is that some of these critical files—they're not doing any sort of password vaulting or, um, you know, privilege identity management control. They're just doing straight up passwords, right? Username passwords. Uh, you could do all sorts of things to make that more secure, from two-factor to one-time use passwords to password vaulting, uh, where you check out a password to log in, and then as you use it, it's then randomized and stored back in the vault. There's a whole bunch of things they could do to for these critical centralized systems to make them more secure. You know, especially when this is, in many ways, the central functioning of the internet at ICANN. It's almost akin to as if all of our BGP route centralized servers got corrupted. If they really started screwing with that. You know, you screw with centralized DNS or you screw with BGP peering, you can really, really, really break a lot of stuff on the internet. Yeah, and you know that what's not really uh not really discussed in here, which which I'm actually kinda happy about is there was no attempt at attribution, thank goodness. <laughs> um but I do wonder, you know, what was the what was the objective of the intrusion? There, uh, there didn't appear to be any, uh, you know, anything done. It, they they poked around and they may have copied some data, but you know, at the end of the day, it sounds like most everything they got was public at some point, except for some passwords, which they went and expired. So, well, who knows? Maybe they got caught early enough before they got too far down the chain. Certainly possible. Um, they don't really tell us that in what they published. Yeah, definitely possible. Uh, but it, you know what? I, I guess I, we should also give them 
kudos that apparently they did discover this. Yeah, and publish incident uh, information publicly, which we really appreciate. Right, absolutely. So, uh, and, kudos. You know, going back to the last two stories, again, the origination of this attack came via email as the vector was with, you know, spear phishing and phishing. And this is one area where there are technology and tools out there that can help. I don't know that we're deploying a lot of them very well. Uh, you know, a lot of people argue that this can only be combated through user training and user awareness. Certainly, you know, give that a shot. But there are some tools you can do to supplement that in terms of, uh, you know, scanning email, inbound email for specific signs of phishing. Like here, they, they faked a uh, domain in some way. That probably would have gotten picked up by some sort of good, solid anti-phishing technology at the email uh, level. Yeah, I, I would assume so. And I, I do agree that this is, this is absolutely the contemporary threat. You know, I don't know where it goes from here, but, um, if you're not, you know, if you're not really taking phishing seriously, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get caught with your pants down. This is a big, big problem. I mean, Syrian yeah. electronic army has this down to a science. There are copycats everywhere. Uh, it's, it's a really, really easy thing to do. And I think people, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to be a little controversial here. I think user awareness training, while interesting, is not a solution to this problem. User awareness training will take your, uh, your phishing click rate down from, let's say, 30% to 15% or something like that, which is awesome if you're worried about, you know, how many, how many workstation rebuilds I have to do every quarter. You know, and I want to cut that number in half so I can train people. Hey, that's fine. That makes a ton of sense, right? But, you know, if, if, uh, if you're being targeted by someone, it's not, awareness training isn't really going to, to, to buy you a whole lot. So I would agree. I, I, I'm not saying don't do awareness training, but if that's your only avenue of protection, you are screwed. Yeah. And you've it, got to back it up with technical controls. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not talking, I don't think we're, either of us are talking blinky boxes. I think we're talking about well designed systems, the right levels of separation and isolation and, yeah, and, and, and like some that. blinky boxes. There are some decent blinky boxes out there. Oh, really? <laughs> hey, they're not perfect, but, you know, yeah. there, there's a number of, a number of folks now who are targeting this particular avenue. Uh, this particular vector. And some of the technology is decent. It's all, you know, uh, is it perfect? Hell no. Is it better than nothing? Yeah. And we, you know, back to the old defense in depth, the more layers that have the chance of catching this stuff, the more I cut down the noise, the, the, the easier it is I can find the signals. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not endorsing anybody, but for instance, Proofpoint does an interesting job, and they're not perfect, uh, of looking at inbound emails, looking at links in emails, going back, checking what those links are, seeing what they are, trying to figure out if they're malicious, um, and, you know, rewriting those links before people can click on them. I think that's great. So, uh, you know, if that takes out half of those guys, awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, as an example. Sure. All right, so moving on to our next story. Uh, this one comes from Gizmodo, and the title is Sony Execs Knew About Extensive IT Flaws Two Months Before the Leaks. Uh, it's a it's pretty uh, pretty lengthy article, and it, you know, unfortunately, as I, I think, relies on some of the email that leaked and looks at some communication between uh, in their internal audit group and, um, and other, other parts of their business. And, you know, so, so I, I feel a little dirty talking about it, but I, I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting case study because I don't, you know, I, and I've said this before on, on past shows, I know it looks really ugly, like Sony was really out of control, but I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced yet that that's actually the case. I mean, some other people may have other information that says that, but so far what I'm seeing looks kind of normal, like what you'd see most anywhere. And, uh, and so, 
you know, basically what they're describing here is that Sony had outsourced their security function to some third par- unnamed third party. And in uh, late 2013, they brought that back in-house. Uh, th- at the same time, they there was a, a Sony, a parent company, Sony, C- uh, I think they call it G-Cert, Global Security Incident Response, uh, to, to kind of oversee things. And, and, and what, what they detail was some really interesting and odd kind of back and forth. Like the, the third party provider didn't tell this new, uh, corporate incident response monitoring function, all the devices that they should look for. And, you know, and I, I have to wonder, well, you know, would you expect a third party? To do that, it, it, this this left me wondering, or it left me with a lot more questions than than answers. And I I didn't walk away from this particular article thinking that you know they were they were completely out of control. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I would agree that the problem that we're having right now is you've got a whole lot of people who don't normally cover information security or IT getting involved in this story. And you got a whole lot of folks who have never seen how the sausage gets made. And so when you start laying bare all this information and you're looking for juicy drama, you're going to focus in on those things you think are legitimately scary. Right. I've been involved in a lot of different IT organizations, both from internal and external as either a sales engineer or consultant. Most of the time, if you really pulled them apart like this, you're going to see similar stuff. Yeah, that's my It's point. It's really hard to do this right. Or, right's maybe the wrong term. In a way that would stand up to external scrutiny of people who haven't been there, done that, been in the trenches. I'm not saying that as an excuse, but I'm saying that we're looking at this in a vacuum as one data point, and, and I would agree with your point that there's many other organizations that are very, very similar. Um, that being said, that's no excuse, right? You still have to do it right. You still have to get better at it. And and this is one thing we see over and over again is poor communication, poor leadership, poor accountability, um, and poor oversight. And I think that part of that is a consequence of this help desk mentality around security incident response. Yeah. Yep. And just churn through the tickets. Right. So... Um, you know, the other thing that that I, that I, you know, I've got a lot of things to say on Sony, and we can kind of jump into that once we get through the, the two stories on Sony, but uh, we still have no idea what the original exploit was. No, that's right. N- no clue what the exploit was, what the vulnerability was, what the vector was, no idea. So yeah. it's really difficult to pass judgment, and we have no idea how they originally got in. Yeah, there there were some you know, there were some interesting glimpses possibly given in in the U.S. certs announcement about their uh, their laundry list of malware, which included some remote access trojans, and you know, so I, w- I would assume that possibly those played a a part. But you know, going back to this particular article, we'll get back to the broader story in a second. Uh, there were there were really two points I wanted to bring up. Number one was they did they did highlight that one of the one of the f- things they noticed was, uh, let's see, according to the report, after G-Cert took over monitoring duties, one out of 42 of Sony Picture Entertainment's firewalls and 148 non-security devices, routers, and servers went totally unmonitored because, according to the report, SPE's third-party security vendor never explicitly told this new overseer to do so. So... This goes back to, you know, what I think it's, uh, what is it, num- <laughs> control number one in the critical security controls. You know, inventory management is really, really important. And it's also very difficult. I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody do a good job of it. Uh, but, you know, we do have to keep trying. And, uh, you know, the, the other point I'll bring up is that there was a, uh, kind of an assertion, I suppose, that uh, after G-Cert took over, they stopped sending up some security reports, so these periodic security reports. And and there was kind of an assertion, I suppose, that that may have blinded, you know, in quotes, management to 
the problem and, and the reports, and I'm quoting here, the reports provided by the prior security monitoring providers included security threat trending, log monitoring statistics, top attack categories for a given month, security devices providing the most alerts, and a summary of what SPE could do to re- reduce specific threats. And I would tell you, that report isn't going to probably 99.999% likelihood would not have given any insight into what happened to them. No, so that's, it's a, that's it, common manager, provider, vendor output report. That's, yeah. So this is like a, uh, this is a red herring to, to be throwing out that they're not getting this data and, and that may have led to the, you know, to, to the problem. So, uh, you know, the other thing I would say here is that clearly there was some politics going on here too. It, it Absolutely. Like between a uh, parent organization taking over some of the security, local IT organization being cut out of the loop. Uh, you know, guys, we, we, we really don't have time for that kind of BS politicking anymore in IT security. If we're not all on the same team, the bad guys will absolutely lose, use that against us. That's right. And, uh, you know, that's something that as leadership in, in a IT organization or secure organization, it is incumbent upon them to not let those silos exist because the bad guys will use that against us. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the last story we have, uh, news story at least, is comes from Fortune and the title is, I work at Sony Pictures. This is what it was, it, this is what it was like after we got hacked. Now, for the record, going into the story, let me just set expectations. Nothing all that new from a technical perspective comes out of this story. It's more a human interest story on the Defensive Security Podcast. Well, I, I, there, there's really one thing that I, I wanted to, to point out, and it is an incident management issue. It's, you know, it's really at a, at a kind of a corporate level. And you know, obviously this, this person expressed some frustration that their personal information was leaked out and, you know, all, all of those concerns that go along with that. And I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But what, what struck me is that they, this person said that I'm trying to find this specific quote, but basically they said, uh, all the information they were getting about the event was coming from the external media. They weren't, they weren't getting, you know, they, they as the employees who had their data stolen weren't getting updates from their employer. They were getting the news externally. They were being. Okay. So. Interesting point, but let's play that out for a second. Their entire system is down. What's the best way for CEOs and VPs to communicate when their entire internal email system is down? Well, I don't know, but it's, they didn't seem to have a problem sending out an email with, uh, you know, with Kevin Mandia's thing attached oh, that's to a good it. Point. All right. All right. Fair. I guess where I was sort of backing into as well is perhaps have a, uh, you know, a secondary communication channel. Oh, yeah. Something. Absolutely. You know, uh, ready to go. But yeah, that is a good point. You know, the other thing that, so, you know, just to summarize this, and it's interesting from a human interest standpoint, just what their experience was, just as a generic, worker in Sony and how the computers went down and how they slowly came to realize how big a deal it was and how they all started getting scared about their personal information and, uh, you know, how they started signing up for various services and then going through and changing all their passwords. Um, you know, and then a few days later, they're on loaner laptops, recreating everything, recreating databases, recreating PowerPoints. So I wonder, you know, how much of the centralized servers got wiped if they're recreating databases and PowerPoints too, as opposed to just desktops. Um, Word documents, contracts, PDFs. So I'm wondering, did they have no backups? Yeah, you know, it's we don't have a lot of detail about the depth yeah. of of what you know. We 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 know really two things, right? We know they had a crapload of data you know, lifted and published online. And mm-hmm. and apparently it's not all out yet. And we also know that they had uh, some, at least some percentage of their fleet of workstations wiped. We don't know, was it all of them? Was it some of them? Beyond that, we don't know much. We don't know if they had servers erased. We don't know, 
And we don't know. Now, I will say, you know, if they're running Windows servers based on the way the malware worked, it probably, some servers probably did get wiped, I'm thinking. Um, you know, the, just just the way this that that particular worm propagated, it's it's likely that it you know it might have uh, have gotten onto some servers. I but I don't know. We that's all it's all speculation, and we also don't yeah. know if they had backups. I will tell you, it is not uncommon for large companies to have piss poor workstation backup strategies because it becomes really expensive and really hard. But we've got such trivial tools out there now for that. I agree. I agree. Uh, anyway, yes. So the other thing I, that was interesting in this story that I thought was the comment that if you're going to do anything personally from your personal bank account, your personal brokerage, whatever, they will no longer do it from their work systems. They'll do it from their smartphone. They'll go home and do it. They'll leave the office. Some way, somehow, they're not going to cross the boundary between work and personal on accessing systems, which yeah. I found interesting. So now these employees are now considering the work environment more hostile than their home PCs. I, you know, when I read that, I looked at it the other way. Okay. I said, who would want to do that? Who would want to do their personal stuff on their work computer? Oh, I think I think you're naive in that respect. Well, I know I I know I am, but I think tons and tons and tons and tons of people do that. I'd say eighty percent of corporate America. And Again, we're IT security guys. We're point zero one percent. I, I we know. Think I know. of things so differently than the average person. I know. I I I I think the vast majority do it. Oh, I, I agree. I agree, and and I also I think it. I, I think. I think this is a two-way street, to be honest. I think companies, and, and I'll be controversial, I don't think companies should let employees do personal stuff on their on their work computer, and I don't think employees should want to do personal stuff on their work computer. And, you know, the, and for, for different reasons, you know. And, I, I hear you, but this was a debate that's, that's done. Oh, I agree. I agree. We, we had this debate in the late 90s. I I know, I know, and it's... I think it's coming around again. Well, I I think this actually plays a little bit into BYOD. Yeah, too. I knew you were going to go there. God damn it. <laughs> or BYOD, I should say. BYOB. <laughs> well, that too. With nice. the music going. Um, because I don't... If I start seeing that my work environment is hostile and things like this can happen. I don't want to bring my own iPhone in and have it hooked up to your your network with your code running on it to control and wiping it. No, just you want me to have a phone, give me a phone. And then you can do whatever you want with it, I don't care. Right. But, you know, then that is fighting against the laziness factor of people not wanting to have two phones, a personal phone or a work phone. Yep. So, I don't know. That's a tough one. I really go back and forth on that debate in my own head. But since I've made that prediction that we're going to have a BYOD backlash, I now am entrenched around that position. <laughs> I can't possibly alter it. <laughs> You're going to ride that horse to the end. Well, much like I'm still riding the I don't think North Korea was behind Sony to, to the end. Yeah, well, you know? you're, you're in good company, I think. I, I just... Anyway, so other thoughts on this story? Uh, you know, just... just um, I guess I'll go, I'll go back... I you know back to back to the whole mixing of personal and and business personal work on business you know it it, it becomes kind of a custody thing I you know I don't know if this has been litigated or not but let's just let's just you know hypothesize for a second and uh and and say okay so you have uh I think there were a couple of thousand people in Sony Right. And, and some percentage of them are doing their banking and all kinds of other crazy stuff on their work computers. And, uh, you know, so let's, let's say that, uh, you know, their, their non, their non-business personal information as a result of this hack got compromised. What kind of liability does Sony additionally carry because the, these employees not, you know, non-work related personal information that 
was coincidentally on this system because of because of their use. Uh, it, you know, does does Sony bear any any liability for that information being disclosed as a result of their potential uh, potential negligence? Right, I'm not speaking in definitive, right? But you know, I, I just I, I wonder if there's a liability issue there where companies are going to start saying, you know, it's just really not a good idea to have employees doing that kind of stuff on our on our computer either because you know that that they're going to have sensitive data we don't want to be the custodian of or you know they're going to be doing stuff that are that's risky and puts us at additional you know our entire system at additional risk and 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 I'll I'll go farther and say it's a little tangential to this but I think and and I, I wrote something about this a couple of days ago, but I I think that Sony, more than any other attack to date, right or wrong, is going to change the way executives look at the risks of security. In what way? That it's it's no longer about um, you know losing money. It's now about an existential threat. So, I've asked this a couple of times. Do you think we're now at the level of an existential threat to Sony, or that others will perceive it as that? I think they were. I, th- I think they're close, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying they're going to go out of business, but I think a lot of people, again, right or wrong, can can look through the eyes of the the Sony board of directors and and see. That this is an existential threat. I mean, this is the kind of thing that could be an existential threat. Maybe it won't be for Sony, but maybe if it wasn't Sony, if it was a chemical company or a car parts manufacturer or a healthcare company, you know, it, it might very well be an existential threat if that circumstance happened to them. So is the question these guys are, are asking their team is, could this happen to us? Yeah, well, not, it, and, and it's worse than that because um, now you have this situation where one person clicking on a stupid link could conceivably cause the downfall of the company. I mean, obviously, there's a whole lot of crap in the middle, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, you know, it, just kind of boiling it down to, you know, uh, ducky, ducky, horsey, horsey, simple stuff. That's kind of the way it is, right? What, what did you just say? I know, I know. It's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a bad habit I've picked up from my employer. Sorry. Wow. I know. That's, that's some boardroom level talk right there. Yep. <sighs> so, so, do you mind if I pontificate a bit for, have at it on, on Sony in general? Have at it. So, Lots of random thoughts that I've been jotting down leading up to, to the podcast tonight that I just kind of want to put out there. And, and these aren't in any particular order, so they may seem a little scatterbrained. I apologize. It's just how my notes went. The first is, I, I wonder what it was like. So this went from a normal hack, normal, if you will. They call Mandy and Mandy gets involved. Then the feds get involved. And I'm really curious how that relationship is. Now, Mandy, I'm sure, has done a lot of investigations and worked with the FBI. But at some point, you know, does the FBI walk in and say, we're in charge now. Shut it down. Give us everything you got. And and I'm curious how exactly that sort of forensics continuity is maintained and how that investigation goes when, you know, the Fed show up in a situation like this. It's, so I'll I'll uh, I'll tell you what you know. My friend Bob has told me uh, that a lot of companies are very hesitant to involve law enforcement, specifically the federal law enforcement, because they will lose all control of the investigation. And I think that's probably largely true. Uh, and at the same time, and I, this is. You know, Bob didn't have any particular insight into this question or not, but I, I have to wonder if by virtue of you hiring Mandiant, a company like Mandiant, who may or may not have strong ties to the FBI, 
you know, you may be buying a relationship with law enforcement where they can kind of help, uh, you know, satisfy all parties. I don't know if that's the mm. case, right? But Well, my perception is, and I don't know the exact timeline, is the feds got involved more heavily after the quote-unquote threat to the theaters to, who are going to play oh, sure. yeah. the interview. True. And in many ways, Sony never had control of this investigation because of how public this was. No, you're right. Right. You know, the GOP, and I don't mean the Republicans, I mean the Guardians of Peace, uh, purposely went to the media directly with a number of their communications. So True. I don't think Sony ever really had control of this, <laughs> um, rightly or wrongly. Well, I mean, maybe they haven't had control of the messaging, but, you know, yeah. I, I think you have, you have some control over, you know, the, 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 the course of the investigation. Yeah. So, you know, the next thing I was thinking about too is there's a number of communications that are going out under the title of Guardians of Peace. Uh, there's very little way to actually prove that that is Guardians of Peace unless they release new, specific leaked information from Sony and not everyone has. And what's frustrating to me is we have the media responding to all of these communications as if they are hand to God legitimate from the GOP organization and shall not be questioned. That's a great point. I mean, anybody, anybody could conceivably post some crap on Pastebin. Yeah. And, you know, and all of a sudden, hey, it's, you know, it's GOP. It reminds me of, reminds me of anonymous, you know, in, in many right. ways. Anybody can be anonymous. Anybody can, you know, can co-opt the stupid banner at the beginning of those anonymous videos and put whatever they want in. And, you know, now, now anonymous said whatever, right? And so it's the right. same thing potentially here. The lesson, by the way, kids, is if you're going to do this, include your PGP key. On, on the little splash screen of the computers that you just wiped so that everybody can authenticate your, uh, your, your evilness. That would be helpful. We would appreciate that. Yeah. You know, this launches into my next point, which is watching the mainstream media try to get their heads around this and report on this is kind of painful. And, you know, the key point I want to make is that they're getting a lot of stuff wrong and they're becoming their own echo chamber. And so these fallacies that get reported and re-reported become fact. And it's really tough to dig down into the actual true facts after all this FUD has been put out there by the non-technical media. Uh, I think you're right on there. Absolutely. You know, the other thing is, you know, that we talked about is going back to originally proving that this is North Korea. How do we know that? You know, I, I, we still haven't been released the evidence. Attribution is very hard. Uh, I, I am skeptical that this is North Korea. I, I've said that before. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the feds are coming out saying unequivocally this is North Korea. And, you know, I, I, just to carry on that, there's been a, a number of people who have written far more eloquently than you know, certainly I can say about why that's a very tenuous link. Um, I'll say a couple things. Number one is, you know, the, the, the alleged linkages between, uh, the Sony attack and North Korea, uh, hinge on a lot of the, the, the TTPs, you know, the tools, techniques, and, and, uh, uh, practices. And when you look at the tools, at least, you know, there's been a lot of dissection about that, uh, about those tools, and there's not a lot of commonality. You know, there's not common code. There, you know, there's questions about the language that it was compiled in and, you know, which obviously that's all kind of ephemeral. You can make it whatever, whatever you want. Uh, but it just doesn't, there seems to be a lot more questions than answers. And I'll, I'll be perfectly blunt. And I suppose this is a, a tinfoil hat kind of thing to say. To me, it sounds a lot like parallel construction of evidence, you know, where we know, you know, post Edward Snowden, right? Let's just be honest. We know that there's a whole crap load of monitoring and surveillance capability. So it's entirely likely 
that the NSA or you know some intelligence agencies around the world probably saw things coming in and going out, and maybe they can do a really good job of attribution that way. I don't know, right? Well, yes, that's a very good point. That, that there could very well be other sources and methods that revealed the source that they can't talk about, so they are using smoke and mirrors. Right. But here's a legitimate question I have for you. And this is something I don't know that I have my arms around yet. But how would you legitimately prove attribution to a nation state? What evidence would you accept? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> right? You know, at the end of the day, how do you really, really prove that? To the level that we're having State Department level involvement, you know, and nation state to nation state levels of communication here. And, you know, secondarily, if you're Sony at the end of the day, do you really care? Sure, you have a generic interest in it, but it doesn't really change your incident response, your recovery, your continuity, anything, knowing that it was coming out of China, North Korea, or Bob down the street. It doesn't change the facts on the ground of what you have to deal with. Yeah, so... Uh... There might be, there might be. Now, I, I, just to go back to some some things you said earlier, I, I I think for better or for worse, and I and I I don't think this is a good not a net good thing, but I think that the Sony thing has been co opted for political purposes by on both sides of the aisle. I mean, you have you know President Obama has you know what spoken three or four times at least about this. You got Newt Gingrich running around trying to whip up a cyber war, uh, and you know, and, and there's everything in between. So it is really, it's becoming a political thing, and it's becoming its own thing, right? It's like you know, Sony who, you know, there's it, no, it's it's cyber war between the North Korea and the U.S. You know, there that's Sony's like falling into the background. So that's an interesting attribute. Um, you know, the other thing is from Sony's perspective, I agree fundamentally but i do think there is a practical uh they have a practical interest in some level of attribution because i would guarantee they're going to try to make an insurance claim and uh. and depending on how it is categorized they may or may not get coverage that's an interesting point i hadn't i hadn't considered that so for instance i you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an insurance specialist, but it's it's entirely possible that their well, coverage doesn't cover acts of terrorism or acts of war. I don't know. Well, I was just going to say. So in any way, in many ways, having to be North Korea hurts their chances. Absolutely. Which kind of makes me wonder: is it like is it is it uh, Sony's insurance carrier who keeps calling the the, the White House saying, "So, uh, so what do you think?" <laughs> I don't know. So, Cyber war. I guess at the end of the day. I'm really wondering, and I really hope someday we find out, what is it that was such definitive proof? And what is it that, looking at the forensics data, gave them such surety? And, you know, this leads to my next thought, which is, okay, let's say you're going in to do the forensics. And, and you want to figure out who did it. And you're going in with the presupposition that it's North Korea. With all the amount of data that you're looking at, could you legitimately find enough evidence to back up your previous supposition that you could bring to somebody else and say, look, I was right, but it's just noise in the signal? Yeah. You know, I may not, may not be saying that very elegantly, but at the end of the day, with so much junk to look at, could you prove whatever it is you're trying to prove? Sure. Sure. And the next thought I had on that is, and by the way, I'm not in any way saying that Mannion or anybody else is going in with that presupposition. I'm just saying, just in general, as a thought exercise. So let's say this isn't North Korea at all. Why would the U.S. government and the FBI come out and say it is North Korea? What do they have to gain by doing that? Uh, yeah, I've, I've thought about that too. And, you know... I don't know. It's it's obviously a political thing, right? Because there, everybody seems to be throwing caution to the wind. You know, there's, I guess, I guess today, there seemed to be a softening of the message. You know, that it wasn't actually terrorism; it was, you know, an act of cyber vandalism. 
which is, you know, a funny term to me. But um, so, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they're backing off a little bit. But, you know, I, to me, it just seems like it's a, it's a just totally become political. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And now, uh, late breaking news today, uh, North Korea's internet connectivity appears to be offline. That's getting a lot of press and people are sort of going crazy about that. Um, you know, I did a little investigation because I used to be a network jockey and some interesting things around that. Uh, North Korea has a couple different IP ranges assigned to it, but the biggest net block is a slash 22. Uh, and it's only routed through China. And the best I could tell, uh, they stopped announcing and did route withdrawal announcements via BG, via BGP, I believe, and this is a, this is a guess here, from a router in North Korea at, uh, around 1614 UTC time today. So best I can tell, North Korea took themselves offline. And also, uh, some South Korean nuclear power plant is alleging that they were hacked. And that could be a completely isolated incident. We don't know. Well, clear, so, cl- I mean, clearly they're, they're total. I mean, they, what, what other explanation can there be? It's absolutely all out cyber war. So this rush to judgment that, oh, North Korea is offline. So therefore it must be the U.S. government attacking them. Not necessarily. We have no evidence of that. It very well could be that North Korea took themselves offline because everybody's poking at them right now. <laughs> And you better believe that everybody is poking them right now. Yeah, and they're like, the hell with it. Just turn it off. Unplug the route. Right? That's right. I mean, the router. I, I, that's a very real possibility. We're talking a slash 22. Yeah, and, they're, yeah. And, and their economy is not exactly yeah, dependent no. on the internet. So The other option is they only route through China. They, they only have one hop to China, and then China distributes out. I mean, China could have turned them off for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe China's like, we... Because it's not like this is null routing. There is no more route in the core routers to their address space. There's nobody announcing for them right now on BGP. And I'm, I'm sorry if, you, if, if you're not familiar with BGP architecture. I'm going deep into the weeds here. But at the end of the day, if you try to do a trace route to North Korea, it dies at your first core router. So for me, it's my ISP core router. It goes, nope, I don't know anything about that. No route to host. So it's not like it's a big firewall got is blocking everything. They just stopped announcing their address space to the internet. And that's not necessarily something we did. That's, you know, I haven't checked this from all over the world, by the way. Maybe Europe can get to them and we can't. I don't know. It's possible that just our ISP stopped announcing for them, I guess. That's plausible. I haven't checked, but my gut is that they took themselves offline. I have nothing to back that up with, though. It would it would probably be a... It could possibly be a prudent thing for them to do under the circumstances. You know, the other thing is North Korea make offline all the time. We don't know. Oh, that's this a could good, be like, good point. <laughs> right? This could be a shark attack suddenly gets reported, and, you know, we have no... I, I've been actually trying to figure this out. It, it there used to be much better monitoring tools for how often things flapped on BGP, and I've been out of that side of networking for so long, I've lost track of all the good tools. But uh, we have no idea how often North Korea goes offline. They could go offline every month, clean the internet pipes. We don't know. <laughs> exactly. Right? This could be completely coincidental. Exactly. Uh, you know, this is going back to, again, one data point, and all the ba- the mainstream media just jumping to all these suppositions just drives me crazy right now. So we clean the internet room on Mondays. Right. <laughs> so anyway, th- those were my notes. Uh, I just kind of wanted to spout out to the world and that was good. Some, find some useful stuff. Was good. So, well, I guess uh, I guess that will uh, w- with that we'll call it a show. And uh, you know, again, for for those of you who celebrate it. Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll I think we'll be back again next week before New Year's. You know, uh, we also had a very interesting discussion pre-show that may end up being edited in here. So, if 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 it suddenly sounds like we're having a different conversation, it's because we were. That's right. But it was interesting enough that Jerry may or may not put it in the show. Uh-huh. If he chooses not to put it in the show, my preamble will also not be in the show, so you won't hear any of this. Well, maybe I will leave it, and then you just. <laughs> <laughs> that I just sound like a crazy person. That's right. No, I'll, I'll include it. It was a good discussion. <laughs> I started thinking about, you know, where is this going? <clears throat> Straight to hell. No, it, I mean, I'm, I'm, much like our podcast. I'm serious. Have you ever just thought of, you know, we, 
the attacks are becoming sophisticated at a pace greater than our ability to defend against them. I would agree. <clears throat> and it's accelerating away from, you know, the, the gap is widening. And that kind of leads me to wonder, what what is the end game? You know, what happens? Do we, you know, does somebody eventually come forward with, you know, the miracle technology? Or do we, do we you know, start having less dependence on technology? Do we, you know, rely on, on the confidentiality of data less? And what is the, what's the end game? Because obviously something has to change at some point because the pain is just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. Well, you might say the technology already exists, but we're bad at implementing it. Maybe. I mean, in general, if you look at the vast majority of the attacks we've seen, uh, full deployment and full enforcement of whitelist technologies would have stopped most of these. Yeah. But it's a pain in the ass, right? Uh, or at least people perceive it to be. Well, I think, I, I think more than, I mean, it, more than that it's a pain in the ass. I think it, 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 it tends, and this is something I've been thinking about from, for my own company's sake is, I think it tends to break down some of the benefit that IT brought from a, from a raw economic standpoint. Absolutely. You're, you're limiting your flexibility and, and nimbleness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing is we're still struggling with the basics. Mm -hmm. We don't get the basic blocking tackling right. I don't know that we need new shiny boxes or advanced technologies, but I think we need to get the basics right. I, I, I agree, and I'm not disputing that. I guess my point is I don't see that changing. And so, so you know, what... What what ultimately happens? Where is this ultimately going to lead? This is a topic we should talk about on the show, but... I agree. The question is, why is it not changing? And what level of pain will force change? If if you're saying there's going to be a catalyst event that's going to force change, I would say, okay, we already know what to do in many respects. And we suck at it. Mm -hmm. So is this more a prioritization and lack of will at the executive levels? Yeah, probably so. Probably so. But I but again I go back to it's a you know <clears throat> I, I don't think that necessarily companies are willfully malicious in every case. No. I'm sure some of them sometimes no, no, no. they are. It's not maliciousness. It's usually lack of vision, lack of oversight, lack of prioritization, lack of budget. Other things matter more. Yeah, but Again, see, that's exactly we, it. We live and think and breathe this stuff every day. Right. right? When you're an executive trying to make money to make payroll, this is about number 73 on your priority list. And that's exactly my point because it's all, you know, it's a business trade off. But I guess my point is that if the, if the pain just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing, the, the whole, the, the, the whole fundamental tenet of information technology becomes, you know, a liability. Yeah, it, it's you know the the transformation that IT brought starts to become really watered down. So, what does that lead to mass outsourcing? Well, that's <laughs> that's my question. Right. That's the fundamentals of my question. I think you're likely to see more. Rigid emphasis on this at an executive level, a la legal concerns, a hundred years ago. Yeah, La lawyers run companies in many ways, right? They 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 show the boundaries. IT does not have that level of of power. Yeah, that's certainly true. So if IT, or at least security, or at least risk management, could start showing similar boundaries like lawyers show boundaries. Maybe. I mean, I see stuff every day with sales guys who get so pissed off because legal has to get involved with contracts and it slows them down and it whines and they whine and they bitch and they whine and they bitch. But the executives of the companies go, too bad, deal with it. If it doesn't go through legal, it doesn't get done. Right. We don't have that level of will to force things through security today. Right. 
and and I think it's because they know they know that the the lawyers are keeping them their hands away from the hot pan, right? And uh, you know, and the they're not even convinced that there's a pan there when we warn them about stuff, right? Let alone that it's hot. Yep. I don't know. So anyway, back to your wrapping up. Yep. So uh, so anyhow, uh, we definitely appreciate everybody listening. I know there's are uh, quite a few more of you th- now than there used to be. So uh, welcome to the show, and uh, thanks to those who have been hanging out with us for a long time. Uh, if you have any thoughts or opinions or uh, or ideas for us, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find the show notes, including links to the stories we talked to on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lerg. It's L-E-R-G, by the way. And you can follow me on Twitter at Malicious Lincoln. By the way, uh, you know, this has come up a couple of times. Twitter is a really great place to, uh, to get kind of real time news. So, you know, if you're not, if you're not, uh, if you're not there, it's, it's kind of an interesting opportunity for you to get plugged in. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've had a discussion with a number of people recently about where do you get news and, uh, Twitter is a really great place for that. So, uh, with that, Merry Christmas and we will talk again uh, next week before New Year. So thanks very much. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye.